Father, what an amazing passage we have this morning to see you work miraculously in Moses' life and in the life of your nation, Israel. Lord, it truly was a supernatural calling upon Moses' life. And all of us in this room as well have been called. We've been created by you and we've been called to live out lives that bring you honor and glory. With the same mouth that you created for Moses, you created mouths for us. Mouths that were not created to exalt ourselves, but to exalt and praise you. Lord, help us to see our calling, not only out of sin and into salvation, into Christ, but help us to also think about each of our individual callings in this life. How you've specifically gifted and equipped us to be your mouthpiece. Bless us this time as we consider this word. Lord, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit right now to examine our hearts, to reveal to us any crooked way in in us, Lord, any way that we are holding back in our pride, looking to our own abilities, Father, and not obeying you in our call in our lives. Would you magnify yourself in your gospel this morning? And I pray that you would help us to live in greater obedience and submission to you, that you might make your name known in this church and in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. It's so good to be with you this morning. Always a, a privilege to proclaim God's holy word. This has been an interesting week for me, one that highlighted the importance of the Bible and specifically this passage for us. On Tuesday, um, a good friend of my wife and, and one of my friends as well, um, his, his dad was in his 50s and he died. And the funeral was on Tuesday. And so we drove down to Fresno on Tuesday and uh, attended the funeral. It was in a Catholic church in Fresno. Um, and so I got, for the first time, to experience sort of the rosary and them quoting Bible verses, but then punctuating them all with um, Hail Mary, uh, full of grace, so and so on and so forth. Many of you might be more familiar with that. But it just, it really disturbed me that truth was so mixed with error in that moment. And this, this guy who I love so much, um, his dad had, had recently died, and how, how death is something that we should use as an opportunity to draw near to the true God, to cry out and not uh, repeat, wrote um, empty phrases. Um, so the, how, how short life is reminded me that you can't depend on, on your own life. You can't assume that you will live to 60, 70, 80, that any of us could die this very day. And so it brought into clear focus this passage. And then on Thursday, I had the opportunity to preach the gospel at the International Student Fellowship at De Anza. Many of these students are coming from Asia to America because they are looking for the good life. They hope and pray and think that they can make it by coming to Silicon Valley, um, going to a community college, and then going to a UC, getting a good job and, and, and living the life that maybe they want for themselves or their parents want for them, rewriting their legacy. And while that is a good and healthy desire to be ambitious, I fear many of those students have placed their trust in their education and in their job. And it was great to have the, the gospel go out and I'm praying for many of them that we would see conversions, and by his grace, many of them even um, one day would even come to our church. But the, the juxtaposition of my friend's father dying and these students who are at sort of the peak of their life with eyes full of hope and optimism, thinking that, oh, if I trust in my education and my career, I can live out the Silicon Valley dream. This passage this morning calls us to a different hope. It calls us, as we see in Moses' life, completely away from our own abilities and self-sufficiency and to utterly trust in God. We saw last week God starting the call of Moses. He revealed himself to him as the great I am. And we saw that this magnifies who God is. It tells about uh, his nature and how infinite um, he is and how big a God he is. And then we we heard also last week God calling Moses Um, to go to the elders and then eventually to Pharaoh, and God even gave him a little preview, a snapshot of the future of what that would look like, and guaranteed Moses, Moses success. He said, you will plunder the Egyptians, your women will, and I will deliver you from them. And so here we we enter chapter four of Exodus with the second half of his calling. It doesn't, even though God gave him such assurance and promises, we see that Mo- Moses struggles deeply with his own identity and his trust in God. What I want us to see this morning, brothers and sisters, is that because God miraculously authenticates 
his message and his messengers, we must be obedient as messengers who trust in God's provision over our abilities. So because it's God who's the one who's authenticating the message and his messengers, we as his messengers must trust in God's provision over our own abilities. First and foremost, we start out with um, this first section in verses 1 through 9 of the three miracles given. We see here that although God had promised Moses that he would indeed do this work, Moses right off the bat in verse 1 sets the tone for us in kind of telling us what the rest of the passage is going to be like. It's not going to be pretty, folks. He doesn't simply believe the preview God gave him. Look at verse 1 with me. Moses right away says, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. They will say, The Lord did not appear to you. So just to give you some context, if you have verse 3 open, you can look at, uh, if you have chapter 3 open of Exodus, you can look at verses 16 and 18. God tells him in the previous chapter, Go to the elders and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, has appeared to me. And he guarantees him in verse 18, They will listen to your voice. This is a promise from the great I am, mind you. And the elders shall go to the king of Egypt. So God promises him this. What's the first thing Moses says here in verse 1? They won't listen to me. Hmm. God says they, they will. Moses insists that they won't. So what does God do here? Does he send a lightning bolt down on Moses and end the book of Exodus? Should I stop preaching right now? No. God is patient and merciful with Moses, as we'll see time and time again in this passage. What does he do? He uses this opportunity to not be frustrated, but instead to glorify his name. He uses this opportunity to show the glory of his patience with Moses. And he gives him three signs to authenticate him. And signs are things that not only wow the crowds, but they point to future realities. These signs would have been significant for Moses and for the elders and they're also significant for us. So if you have eyes to see and ears to hear this morning, I want you to hear these signs and be encouraged as well. So what is this first sign? Although Moses, like us, wrestles with his identity in his own calling, God gives him these signs. The first one is the staff to the snake and back to the staff. As you see in verses 2 through 5 here in Exodus 4, God, by his supernatural power, causes the staff Moses had, it would have been a shepherd's staff, to turn into a snake and then turn back into a staff after he commands Moses, reach out your hand and grab the snake by the tail. So what would this sign meant and how would this have authenticated the message? Well, many of you are aware, if you've seen movies or you're aware with history, that the kings of Egypt would often wear headdresses that looked like a cobra. The kings of Egypt, uh, and even the sun god Ra, was associated with the snake. As we heard from the introduction to this whole book, that the big battle is not really between man and man, but it's not a showdown between Moses and Pharaoh, but it's really a battle between God and Satan. Satan being personified as a snake throughout Scripture. And so by showing the ordinary, humble shepherd's staff turn into a snake, and then God saying, grab it by the tail. I don't know if any of you have caught a snake before. Is it smart to catch them by the tail? No. That's the last place you want to catch them. But what is God showing him here? He's saying, even if you grab it by the tail, if you simply trust in me, it won't bite you. But I will subdue it and have dominion over it, and it will turn back into your staff, showing that I have complete sovereign power over the snake, Satan, and over the king of Egypt, who would have Uh, looked like a snake with his big headdress looking like a cobra. So he's proving to Moses, Moses, and he would have showed this sign to the elders. This this superpower in the world today, just like New York City or, or San Francisco in our time, this superpower is no big deal for me. I'm in complete control over it. The second sign in verses uh, six through eight, we see that Moses is told to put out his hand, put it into his cloak, put it near his, his chest, um, and to bring it back out again, it, God would have turned his hand leprous, white as snow, diseased, almost falling apart. And then he told Moses, put your hand back into your cloak and pull it out again. And he was completely healed. It was fine. 
What does this sign reveal? It tells us that in that time, leprosy was thought of as the incurable disease. And Egypt um, would have been a, a large, bustling city, would have also been full of disease and leprosy as well. It would have, that disease would have ran rampant in Egypt. So what God is showing him is that he is completely sovereign as well to heal even the most incurable disease of that time. He shows that he's sovereign to not only heal the body physically, but as we'll see later, he'll be able to heal the inner wound of sin as well. This foreshadows God's healing of Israel, but also it foreshadows the boils he'll send in the sixth plague coming soon, the boils that will infect their skin and their body, that God is sovereign over the flesh. The third sign Moses is told to take water out of the Nile and to pour it on the ground. And what happens when it hits the ground? It turns to blood. This would have foreshadowed the first plague of turning the Nile River into a, a river of blood. Now, why is, this so, why is this so significant? This isn't just Los Gatos Creek down the road, uh, a, a little uh, trickle, but this Nile River, it was the very life source of Egypt. The only reason why Egypt was a superpower, the only reason why its crops flourished so well and it was able to trade and, and with, these, with these surrounding nations and be so powerful, it was the Nile. That year after year, the Nile would flood and the waters would go over to the soil. And it would make the soil rich and fertile and good for crops. The Nile itself would have been an ample source uh, of fishing um, and it would have uh, helped them with their sanitation as well. And so the Nile was truly the, the life source of Egypt. And so by God turning the Nile's water into blood, he shows us two things. He shows us first that, he, that God himself is more powerful than the life source of the Egyptians, and that he is able to turn it to blood, and he is foreshadowing that he will strike Egypt with a death blow. The thing and source that brought them life, he will turn it to death for Egypt if they continue to rebel against the great I am. He's also, for us, he's also foreshadowing the fact that, um, that, they, that not only they are under God's judgment, but that this very life source, this blood, will be spilt in the Passover lamb. That not only the first plague, but also the last, when the blood of the Passover lamb is spilt, when that blood hits the ground of the, of the lamb, it won't only be the blood that shows God's judgment on Egypt, but it will also be the same blood that pardons Israel and sets them free. So as you can see already, that these, these signs are not just to wow the elders and convince them that Moses is legit, but they're signs to point to deeper, to deeper spiritual realities. And see, So you say, Kurt, Okay, that's great for them, but what about for us? If the word of God is living and active, and Jesus was telling the truth in Luke 24 that all of Scripture points to him, then how do we interpret these signs? Is this just a, a thing that makes for a really compelling movie? Or can this actually help you walk in your faith and help you with your doubts and struggles too? I submit to you, it can. How so? Well, we have a very clear initial pointer of these signs. The initial audience and context would have got the things I just mentioned, but for us, we have the privilege of pulling back and seeing the big picture of scripture. You could go hours talking about the depth of this symbolism, but I'm just going to give you a little taste here. First of all, the staff to a snake to a staff, it tells us that from Genesis 3.15, God had promised that he would send a seed from the woman this, after Adam and Eve fell, that he promised that he would not leave them in their fallen state, but he would send a seed, a redeemer. And that seed would crush the head of the serpent, although the serpent would bite the redeemer's, the seed's heel. And so we have the proto-evangelium, the, the gospel in Genesis 3, foreshadowed that there would be one who comes to crush the head of the serpent, to completely subdue it with power. Fast forward thousands of years later, Jesus comes on the scene, and he is known as what? the good shepherd with a staff in hand. Jesus, the good shepherd, and then subdues and crushes the snake. And he does so not by carrying a staff, but by carrying another big piece of wood, by carrying a cross. 
And by the cross, he is able to destroy the snake once and for all. And what that does, brothers and sisters, is that sets us free. That gives us hope, and it authenticates our faith and makes us new. How about the leprosy? Well, if you've read through the Gospels, you know that Jesus uh, healed people time and time again. He healed people of various diseases. One of them was leprosy. What this shows is that Jesus authenticated his message, just like Moses, with signs and wonders and miracles. He went about healing people, showing that he doesn't just care about the internal, the spiritual. He also cares about us holistically as well. He cares about our physical bodies, and he plans to usher in a new heaven, a new earth one day, where our our physical bodies will be renewed, and we will have no disease anymore. That Jesus can heal people of, of leprosy, then and now, and he can even heal you from your ailments. But more importantly, he wants to heal the deadly wound that all of us have born, been born with, and that wound is sin. That Jesus is the great healer, and he came not for those who think that they're well, but he came for the sick. And so this morning, would you confess your sickness? Would you admit that I am a, a needy sick man in need of a good physician? Lastly, the, the water to blood analogy, or the, the sign, how does that apply to us? Well, Jesus did one better. You know, many of you know in John 2, what did Jesus turn water into? Wine. Jesus turned water into wine, and when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what does the wine, or actually we do grape juice, but uh, more on that later, um, what does the grape juice or wine represent when we take the Lord's table? Blood, right? It represents the spilled blood of Christ. And so Jesus one-ups this sign, and he turns water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And what this would have been doing, brothers and sisters, is this would have been showing us that God not only destroys evil, just the same way he destroyed the Nile, but he also brings gladness and joy. Wine was, a, was the symbol of gladness, um, and it would, would have been often been accompanied at a, at a wedding feast. And so for us, God not only defeats our enemies, but he promises us the gladness that wine brings in the new heavens and new earth of cheer and joyfulness being one with our Redeemer. And he's willing to go and to sacrifice his own life so that we could be made new and our gladness could be restored as well. And so we see that these signs encourage us. And we, like Moses, are called to go out on a mission as well. And I pray that you take these signs with you to encourage you along the way. Now, a question you might be asking is, Do these miraculous signs that authenticate God's message and his messengers, do those miraculous signs occur still today? This is a very important question, and I will tell you yes and no. Yes and no. Do these miraculous signs still happen today? Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, 22 through 24. Paul addresses this spot on. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs, just like this one with Moses, and Greeks seek wisdom. They want a watertight argument. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what Paul is telling us here to the church, which still applies to us today, is that although the world is seeking to say, show me a sign, or give me, use reason and logic to prove to me that there's a creator creator, and Jesus is real, what Paul is telling us this morning is we are to no longer we're not to cater to them and to try to, to work up these, these magic tricks anymore to prove that Christ is real. But we have the miraculous sign in Jesus Christ himself. That, that Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. And to those who are perishing, to those who have hardened their hearts and are reprobate, they will not hear or heed the, the best argument you have or the most magical sign you can give them. They will not heed that. But to those who are being saved, those who are God's elect sheep, they will hear his voice. And that that miraculous sign of the gospel in a changed life, in a changed community like ours, it will be compelling to them. And it will go and exactly accomplish its purpose. A miracle will take place. 
similar to how a miracle has taken place in many of your hearts. So does God still do miraculous signs today? Yes and no. Yes, he does the greatest miracle of regeneration, taking out hearts of stone that are selfish and putting in hearts of flesh that are brand new, that start to bear the fruit of the Spirit and love others more than themselves. But should we be looking for miraculous healings of of wonders, of miracles? Well, God does still do miraculous things. If many of you were here during the call with our missionary Nissen in the UAE, we know that he's opening doors to these college, college campuses, giving guys uh, student passes just because they're tall and they want to play basketball, uh, access to these Muslim students to share the gospel that you can't really explain it any other way. So is God still a miracle-working God? Yes, he is. Should we be going to any particular people looking for them to give us a new, fresh word from God or looking for them to, in, uh, to infallibly heal us every single time? No, we should not. There are no longer healers or prophets anymore. That was done in the establishment of the church. And so we should no longer be looking for magic tricks. But the cross of Christ, it is sufficient for us to be the miraculous change that we have that authenticates our own life and our message as we go and tell others. So we can go with confidence, trusting that God transforms. And so you, I encourage you, brothers and sisters, put your life on display Tell people about your transformed life. And I promise you that for those who God wants to save, that your transformed life or the gospel that you simply share, it will be more miraculous to your hearer than even if you had a staff that turned into a snake and went back to a staff again. Even more miraculous and powerful is the cross of Christ. So live that out loud with your life. So if we believe that God has fully equipped us and that the cross is a sufficient sign to authenticate us, why do we struggle so much? Why do we struggle with confidence so much? Why do we fear what people in the church and outside the church think? Why do we struggle with our own sense of calling and identity and insecurity so much? Look at verse 10 through 13 with me of this passage. A second point, our unbelieving excuses our problems are the same as Moses's. We use excuses of incompetence. We don't think we're competent enough. And sometimes we're just straight up insubordinate. Sometimes we appeal and make an excuse of our incompetence. And sometimes we're just like little children who are insubordinate and say no to God. Moses infamously responds to these miracles. Rather than saying, wow, God, you've given me enough. I will go and be faithful. Look at verse 10. Look how he responds. O Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Many of you in Sunday school class were probably told that Moses had a stammer. And that that could be true. He could have stammered. It's also very um, possible that because he had been gone so long, since he had been in the wilderness for 40 years, he may have lost his dialect. So being able to speak the Egyptian language fluently and being confident to speak with world superpowers and politicians, he may have felt, since he had spent 40 years around a bunch of sheep, he may have said, I, I, I've forgotten how to speak eloquently. I don't know the language as much as I did anymore. Either way, the problem is that Moses was looking inward. God says, I am powerful. I will show you. I will provide for you. And Moses immediately turns his face away from these miraculous signs and looks at himself and says, can I do this or not? That is the wrong direction for him to turn. Look at God's response in verse 11. I love how brutally simple his response is. He says, who made man's mouth? Who made man's mouth? This, is, this response to Moses is so simple that even a child could understand it. He even says, going on to verse 11, Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? This shows us that even if Moses does have a stammer or had forgotten the language, who's the one who enables people and disables people? Is it not the Lord? What handicaps were you born with? What limitations do you think that you have in this life? Who gave those to you? Is it not the Lord? Sure, we do things in our own stupidity. We can squander our education or we can... Um, 
in our own volition, choose to be addicted to drugs, which would ruin our brain and make it harder for us to obey God. Sure, we have responsibility in that, and sometimes we squander God's good gifts. But if we are born um, deaf or blind or, or mute, or if we are born with a certain cap to our intellect, if not all of us can be rocket scientists, who gives us the brain we have? Who knows how much we need of brain power? Who knows how little we need? It is the Lord. The Lord not only equips, but he also handicaps as well. And we have to say, whatever, whatever lot in life you've given me, however much money you wanted me to be born into, or whatever time and nation you wanted me to be born into, who gets to decide that? It's the Lord. So who are you, O Moses? Who are you, O CBBC, to be looking inward? So Moses, after God's straightforward response that a child couldn't understand, rather than wrestling with Moses any longer, Moses, rather than, he, he understands he's out of excuses. So rather than coming up with any more, Moses replies, Oh my Lord, and that my Lord there, he changes from the Yahweh I am to Adonai. He calls him Adonai, which means sovereign one. So he says, sovereign one, all powerful, in control, able to do whatever you want, send someone else. God, who is my perfect director and provider and the one who's all-powerful to do anything you want, please don't send me. A.K.A., he's saying, please here. This is like if you were to ask your employee at work or if you were to ask your child, hey, can you go get that thing for me? And they said, I'm good. Are they good? No. No, they're not good. They are rebellious and insubordinate. And we are too whenever we say, I'm good to God. Why does Moses respond this way? Many of us know Moses to be a great man of the faith. Why does he respond this way? It's because Moses is a sinner like you and like me. We're sinners who trust our own abilities over trusting God. He was called to go to the elders first. He's not even called to go to Pharaoh first. He's called to go to his own kinsmen first and talk to them, and he's chickening out. So for us, how do we do the same? Well, let's first look inward at the church and how we relate to people who are our kinsmen as well. If God calls you to spend time with people that are not like you, how easily are you to chicken out and to go just gravitate towards people that are easier to talk to? When God calls you to not only love people on the surface, but know them well enough where you can actually uncover their real heartfelt needs and then consistently pray for them? How common is that? That we are are prone to, to get to know people beyond the surface level and go deep and to actually know their needs, to bear their burdens, to cry with them, to laugh with them, and to consistently pray for them, not forgetting about them. We fail in this time and time again, don't we, brothers and sisters? So just the same way that Moses says, Some, please send someone else. When we fail in these ways, and I'm sure you can think of countless others, we are essentially saying the same thing to God. I'm good. I'm good. Also, Moses was not called to only do these miracles to the elders of Israel, but also to eventually take these miracles to Pharaoh as well. So let's ask ourselves, okay, how do we operate outside the church, and how do we fall short as well with our unbelieving excuses? Well, as, we, as Kirk prayed with the vocational prayer, <coughs> we're called from Colossians 3.23 to do all of our work with our whole heart, working for man as if for the Lord. God has called you to that, to every moment you're on the clock, every moment that you're working, to even if your boss is a complete jerk, you're called to love him or her and to work for them as if for the Lord and not for man. How well do we do this? We, we fail. And we say, some, from time to time, we say, God, I, you know, I don't really like this calling. If you could just send someone else or give me a different job or a different boss, they're the problem, not me. So. But he's calling us to, to display his glory and to obey him outside the church, and we come up with excuses. How about in the home? Those who are closest to you and see you in your complete honesty, are you patient and kind with them? loving them as God has called you to love them? Or are you saying, I'm good, 
right now I'm just a little too hungry or tired or this person's just been spending too much time with me and a little too annoying. So my patience is worn thin. God, I don't want to heed your call to, to love my family and to love my wife as Christ loved the church anymore. How about outside the church as well? How, how well are we at heeding the call to love our neighbor as ourself? I'm going to ask you literally your neighbors. I'm going to go there. Literally, the people physically living around you, how good are you doing at loving them as yourself? Having them over for dinner, evangelizing them, loving them even though they might mow the lawn at 6 o'clock in the morning, turn on their, their lights that, that show their tree in their backyard that shine into your room and keep you from sleep. Brothers and sisters, I don't want us to over-spiritualize this word calling. So many of us say, well, I have this grand calling on my life, either a calling to my job, my vocation, or a calling into the ministry, or, um, or I'm called to do this. I don't want us to over-spiritualize that. I think in Scripture we have a very clear call. God calls his elect before the foundation of the world, and he justifies them and saves them and eventually glorifies them. That call is, is clear in Scripture. But then he calls you to do many things in simple obedience to his word. Sadly, we get people today that are trying to slap on the label of calling, giving God-like status to their sin. They say, God, I, I'm, oh, I'm called to this, when really the word of God speaks against it. We don't have to look very far to see examples of this both outside and inside the church. Christian self-help and looking at our own abilities is nothing new. But it's been repackaged recently, and I thought this was pressing enough of an illustration to bring it to you. Walking through Target the other day, there's billboards everywhere, life-size billboards of a girl named Rachel Hollis. She's someone who claims Christ, but is essentially putting out two books. Um, the first one, Girl, Wash Your Face, and the second one, Girl, Stop Apologizing. These two books are number one on the personal growth in Christianity, as well as the women's Christian living on Amazon for months and months. These books are essentially Joel Osteen repackaged in a female form. In her latest book, Girl, Stop Apologizing, she says, all that really matters is how bad you want those dreams and what you're willing to do to make them happen. Her message is a message of work really hard and don't let anyone get in your way. Now, she uses the language of calling to say, I'm not called to be a housewife. I'm called into the business world. And while there are some times and seasons where it's not wrong for women to be those Proverbs 31 women who have a hand in business, she's saying that my primary calling is away from the Titus 2 call to my home and to, to my children. So for her, she gives us a false gospel of telling us exactly the opposite of what Moses is being told. She is saying, look at your abilities, look at your strengths and you are enough, and you are powerful, and you go out there and you change the world on your own, rather than what God is calling Moses to, to completely fall on his knees and trust in him. Her gospel is not only one that will exhaust you, but if you buy into Rachel Hollis's gospel, it will damn you as well. The heart of the gospel is to acknowledge your sin before God, see how you are incapable and trust yourself fully and completely in Christ alone, in his abilities, and to not trust in yourself. Those who trust in themselves to exalt themselves, they will lose their soul. They might gain the world. You might have a booming business if you follow her instructions, but you will lose your soul in the process. So I don't know if any of you have heard of her, have friends who have heard of her, if you even have one of her books, but I want to get ahead of this as a church and not let this, um, this other version of Christian self-help infect either our body or our friends who we know who also might be walking in Target and seek to grab her book. So God overcomes our excuses just the way he overcame Moses's. And we, like Moses, are oftentimes whining and complaining and saying, God, send someone else. The question is, how does God respond to Moses? And how does he respond to you and to me when we don't believe that he's trustworthy? When we straight up say, God, you are not trustworthy. You are not good enough or powerful enough to do what you said you're going to do. What's the next move, God? What does he do? And I think his answer in verses 14 through 17 are, is going to surprise you. 
I think it's going to surprise you. Look at verses 14 through 17. Although God's anger was kindled, he responded by pure grace. Read verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Wait, what? It's as if God is just changing the topics completely. At first blush, this might look like God is being like that parent who caves into the child who throws a tantrum at the checkout counter. Moses is saying, God, I don't tr- you're not trustworthy, and just please send someone else. And God, his anger was kindled, certainly, but then he says, oh, look, there's Aaron. You're, you're throwing a tantrum, and there, I'm, I'm, there, I'm going to go give you the candy. I'm going to give you Aaron. I'm going to give you the thing that you're making an excuse for, Moses. Is God being like the parent who caves in to a disobedient child? Thankfully not. Thankfully not. The details in verses 14 through 17, they show us that God is not deficient in character, but his character is actually on glorious display here. First, the clue is God, he, we know from this passage that because he not only made the mouth, but he made Moses too, and he's actually sustaining Moses and allowing him to live another moment, because God is the absolute sovereign and the creator of all, we know that God can never be like this caving parent because God never barters and gets on our level to barter with us. He never does that. If, if we rebel against him, it never makes him sweat. He never needs us to do, accomplish his tasks. He is completely sufficient to do it his own way and to do it exactly how he wants. So first of all, we see that the nature of God makes it so that he cannot be like a caving parent. Second of all, we know that he's not like this because his anger was kindled against Moses. This shows that he's not like the, this is not the same anger as a parent would be who has a short fuse and is just boiling over and yelling at their child at the checkout counter. No, this is a holy anger. This is a loving, steadfast, calculated anger that is kindled to show his justice. Because his anger was kindled, it shows that God isn't okay about this but that he hates Moses' behavior and that there will be justice for it. Although we might expect a lightning bolt at this point, he calmly states God in his patience and his, in his calmness and in his, in his mercy. He says, look, it's Aaron and he's going to help you. So what happened to this anger? Well, we know that God didn't meet, need Moses. He didn't, so because he didn't need Moses, he wasn't saying, I'm going to be I'm not gonna, I don't want to tip Moses over the edge. I'm going to tiptoe around Moses so that he doesn't um, thwart my whole plan. No, God isn't bowing down to Moses like that. He also isn't saying, oh, no big deal, Moses. I'm okay with that. He isn't saying that either. So what happens to this anger that is kindled? I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, and this will make all the sense in the world, that anger that started and it was kindled against Moses was eventually placed upon the Passover lamb. That anger which was ignited by Moses and that was just and right for God to, for anyone to challenge his power and his goodness. Although it was kindled with Moses, it burst into full flame upon the Passover lamb, upon Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. And he became the spotless lamb to crush the serpent, heal our sin, and to pour out his own blood so that we might have life. You heard these three miracles before? They were at the start of our message. That he is the good shepherd with the staff. That he crushes the snake. He turns into the lamb so that he can be the one who takes upon all the wrath God had for Moses upon himself. He does this so that he can heal Moses' sin and heal all of our rebellious sin as well. And he says, God, I'm willing to pour out my own blood so that they might have life. These three miracles are needed to save Moses before Moses can ever be used to save Israel. Moses needs salvation first before he is going to be equipped and able to save the nation. You and I need this salvation too, don't we? 
The same way that God was able to give Moses forgiveness in life by placing his anger upon a perfect substitute, Jesus Christ, who was the perfect prophet, the better Moses, who went and died in Moses' stead and also died in all of those who would repent and believe. Because God did that, and because Jesus rose to new resurrected life so, Mo- so that Moses could be cured and you and I could be cured, because God did this, you must repent of turning the inward on yourself and you must believe God simply at his word. You must repent of your own self-sufficiency, of your own pride, and you must look to God to accomplish whatever, whatever he's called you to and remind yourself, I can trust God, not only because he made my mouth, but I can also trust God because he, through his son, is the only way for salvation. He's the only way. What a grace that God anticipated Moses' need and he providentially sent Aaron. He, he poured out his grace upon Moses and we need that grace too, saints. Whenever we're throwing a fit, whenever we don't want to simply be obedient to God's word, if you are in Christ, then you can have the promise that his, his anger might kindle against you, but that anger has been fully placed upon the sun 2,000 years ago. And if Christ has taken all of your punishment for you, then you can live in right relationship with the Father. You don't want to continue to sin that grace might abound. You don't want to continue to, um, to make the Holy Spirit angry. You don't want to continue to do that, to grieve him, as, as Scripture says. You want to live in a right relationship with God with a clear conscience. And yet you can have the hope that even on the day that you sin and you fall short, and even when you're convicted of your lack of following God's call, you can know that if you are in Christ, if you've trusted in him, that God can pour out his amazing grace on, in you as well and send his provision to renew you, to equip you, and to make you into the child of God that he wants you to be, to accomplish the plan that he set out for you to do. What a grace that he sent Aaron at the exact time. Aaron was a Levitical priest, and he was Moses' brother. So we'll explore Aaron in future sermons, but just uh, off the hand, I want you to just get that it wasn't a coincidence that, Mo- that Aaron was wandering out into the wilderness at the perfect time when Moses was having this dialogue with God. But God in his providence created Aaron as well, raised him up to be a Levite, raised him up to have relationships with the elders of Israel, and at the perfect time sent Aaron out into the wilderness to meet with Moses right when Moses needed him most. That God's providence always anticipates our needs just the same way he anticipated Moses' need. And he was a perfect mediator because he could relate to Moses as his brother and he could relate to the elders of Israel. He was to be Moses' mouthpiece. God tells Moses that he shall be as God to Aaron and Aaron shall speak for him. First and foremost, saints, we don't, we know that God could have done it through Moses, but there is such rich theology that is wrapped up in sending Aaron, of sending a priest. One of, one of the things immediately that comes to mind and it's applicable for us is Aaron shows us the type of priest that Christ would be and then the priest that we are called to be, the priest that we are called to be as well. So immediately we know that God, even before Moses rebelled, he knew that that would happen, and he was already equipping Aaron and teaching him and prepared to send him out so that we would know what it means to be a royal priesthood. First Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that means that if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ this morning, then you are a priest too. And that you, in your role to obey God, you are to operate as Aaron operated. The only difference is that Jesus is the better Moses. And if you are to be a priest, then, then, then just as Aaron, just as Moses was as God to Aaron, Jesus is literally, truly God to you. So it's not just that Jesus is as God to you, telling you what to do, but Jesus is the true God to you, and we are to be his mouthpieces in this world. 
practically, this means three things for us. First, God doesn't need you, and yet he spends years equipping each one of you. And he also spends years handicapping each one of you. You have a, you're a finite person who can only really do one job, and you can only live in one place at one time. And so our sinful hearts are always gravitate towards asking God, God, if, if only I had more, or if God, only you were to raise me in this type of home, or if I had these privileges, then how much more could you do? But no, God spends years, just as, as he did with Aaron, equipping all of you in his prized providence, and also limiting all of you to only do that which God has created you for, and to do no more. And you have to be satisfied in that. In a world that says you should be able to do everything with perfect excellence, God says that in your weakness, I am magnified. Be content in your weakness. Secondly, this, this relationship between Aaron and us, it tells us, as we see in verse 14, that when Aaron saw Moses, it says he will be glad in his heart. I'm sure he would have been glad to see his brother, but also Aaron would have been glad to be engaged and on mission with him to accomplish the purposes of God. What this teaches us, saints, is that you must have that gladness when you meet with Jesus as well. Compare Aaron's gladness to Moses' torment. Moses had this internal wrestling struggle where you could see him almost wanting to rip his shirt. He was so overwhelmed by this call and so trembling and fearful of this thing God had called him to do. Moses was unhappy, tormented, because he wasn't simply obeying God. Compare that to Aaron's response, that he was glad when he saw Moses. I wonder, brothers and sisters, are you glad this morning? Are you glad? Are you, are you happy? Are you full of joy? And if so, what is that about? Why are you glad? If you're not glad, then I want to call you, meet with Jesus, spend time with him. As you do, your heart will become glad. Not only because Jesus, if you're in Christ, is your brother too, but also because you have an amazing supernatural work that he's called you to. And there's no higher happiness in this life, nothing more fulfilling than being, getting your hands dirty and being on mission with God. Are you glad this morning? Thirdly, what we learn is to be an effective priest, just like Aaron, you must know the word of God. In verse 15, we says that you shall put the words in his mouth and I will be your mouth with his mouth, and I will teach you both what to do. What is said here is not that Aaron is supposed to give a paraphrase of what God told Moses, but the exact words that God put into Moses' mouth are to be in Aaron's mouth, and Aaron is to declare them. This is not just a loose interpretation or a feeling that God is telling me something, but this is the very literal word of God. And so for you to be an effective priest— For God to not only cause your life to flourish in Christ, but for that flourishing to spill out into all those lost around you, the the thing that matters most is do you have the word of God in your mouth? Do you have it in your mouth? And to the degree, degree that you do, you will be an effective priest. Obedience is one commentator, Alex Motier said, obedience is the conduit for God's supernatural power. The conduit for God's supernatural power. You want to see God do amazing things in your life? You want to see him start revival in this church and in this city? Be obedient to his word. Through simple obedience, God will pour out his supernatural power in your life. It may not look flashy like these these visual miracles, but he will change your heart from inside out. And he'll equip you so that he might use you to save others and change other hearts as well. Look to Christ and you will flourish and those around you will be glad as well. In conclusion, look at verse 17 with me. God's final call to Moses is my final call to you. Verse 17 bookends this whole section from verse 2. It says, And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do these signs. In verse 2, God said, What's that in your hand? A staff? And in verse 17, he says, Don't forget your staff, Moses. Brothers and sisters at CPVC, those of us who are in this room this morning, don't forget your staff. What do I mean by that? And why is this a fitting end to the sermon? God is calling each one of us 
to believe that he can use a humble, ordinary resource like a staff and use that to wield supernatural power that can overthrow, spirit, overthrow spiritual strongholds, that can even, even overthrow nations. Don't get confused. The staff was not magic. That staff that you know, you've probably seen, that Moses held it up so that the waters parted or held it up so that Israel would win in battle, the staff itself was not the magical thing. The staff was a sign that God will use the most humble vocation, a shepherd, and he will use that to to exercise his authority and his great power over the strongest, most advanced technological nation in the world, over Egypt. Same way for you. Don't forget your staff. Don't forget that God wants to use your ordinary life and the ordinary things in your life to do supernatural things through you. Three ways that this staff might look in your life. Your table, your, your use of technology, and the teams you're on. Your living room or kitchen table is where meals take place, is where flourishing happens, is where conversations have with your children, where hospitality takes place with your neighbors. That ordinary table, use that as your staff. Use that ordinary means to have supernatural conversations, to not only raise up your children in the way, but also to share the gospel with them and to share the gospel with people from this church and people who live in your neighborhood to share the gospel with. Your table is that piece of wood that's like your staff. Technology. We've been going through technology, and I'm so thankful for all of you who have come to the Sunday seminars. The easy thing to do would be to say, all technology is bad. Let's all break our smartphones right now. Your technology, your, your landline or your smartphone or whatever, your car, your technology is your ordinary staff. Use your technology to FaceTime your relatives who live across the country and to have Bible studies with them. Use your car as, as a way to carpool other people and to hold them captive to share the gospel with them. Use your technology as your staff. And lastly, teams. Think of your family as a team that's on mission. Don't just think of your family as the people you coexist with or have to put up with, but see each player in your family as an integral part of a team. That together as a team, with a leader, you guys can accomplish much more together than you can separately. And this is true not only of your biological families, but even more so with your true spiritual family in the church. Let's view this church as, as one team, that we are for each other, and that by the grace of God, we can be his mouthpieces, and we can do even greater things and overthrow the king of Egypt. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for these great signs and wonders and miracles you showed to Moses. Help us to believe that, the, that Christ crucified is enough for us, that he is a sufficient sign, and his word is self-authenticating. Help us to have that confidence, not only as we read the word daily, but as we take your word out to our neighbors and to the nations. Thank you so much for this church and the work you're doing here. I pray that we would all repent and confess of the ways that we have trembled and rebelled like Moses and that we would acknowledge our own frailties and see that they are from you and that you would use us in our weakness to make yourself strong, to magnify your name and not our own name. Thank you again. Do this great work, and I pray that this day would be a day that continues in great worship to you. You are certainly worth it, God. In your name, amen.